Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners. Have you ever thought about Eucharistic justice? Professor Daniel Philpot has. He is my guest on Church Life Today, where we'll talk about the biblical notion of justice, the work of reconciliation after violence and civil strife, restoring people torn apart by offenses and indignities to right relationship. Daniel Philpott is professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. He earned his PhD from Harvard and specializes in religion and global politics, focusing on religious freedom, reconciliation, the political behavior of religious actors, and Christian political theology. Professor Philpott joins me for two episodes, with this being the first. In the second episode, we'll talk about reconciliation in the church after the sexual abuse crisis and the possibilities for Christians to promote a vision of reconciliation in the public square. If you're listening on radio, the second part of our conversation will air next week, or if you're listening on podcast, check out the next episode. I'm Leonard DiLorenzo. This is Church Life Today, brought to you by Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life. Dan Philpott, thanks for joining me. Yeah, good afternoon. Thank you for having me, Lenny. So, Dan, among political scientists like yourself, there are many who focus on peace building and justice, especially, but probably not only in international settings, right? So something distinctive about your work that really catches me is that you continually come back to how the Bible offers us a rich and distinct way of looking at justice. So I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about what you see as the maybe the commonplace notion of justice that's out there and what's distinctive about the vision of justice drawn from the Bible that you really develop. Yes. Well, in um, American society today and in liberal democracies today, the way we think about justice overwhelmingly comes from a classical definition of justice that originally comes from Roman law, which is the constant will to render another his due. And that focus on due is extremely important. Now, as it has unfolded over the centuries in liberal democracies today, what that has come to mean is rights, Mm. you know, what I have a right to, what I have a, a, a just claim to entitlement to. And then when dealing with past injustices, the what due means is what wrongdoers are due, you know, giving them the, what they deserve, right. um, what they rightfully owe society. And I don't uh, think we should reject that th- those notions. Uh, I think rights play a very important role, human rights. I think sometimes a lot of realms of uh, society and justice are too, too much given over to the territory of rights. We lean too heavily upon them, but they do play a very important role core human rights, uh, you know, something we want to enfold. But what I have done as a um, as a Catholic and as a Christian uh, scholar is to say, is this really the kind of full depth of the Christian vision of, of rights that kind of God has given us through the uh, salvation uh, history? And for that, I go back to the Bible, the, you know, the kind of source of God's action and activity. And when you look at uh, the Bible and the kind of many, many references to words that can be translated to justice, mm-hmm. I think there's a different meaning than the render, rendering another his due. And I think that meaning is best understood as right relationship, mm. or comprehensive right relationship. So it's the obligations that express how human beings are meant to relate to one another and to God, really in all realms of life. It's a comprehensive vision. That comes through in the Old Testament's expression of 
justice language, but also in the New Testament and the teachings of Jesus mm-hmm. and, and the Apostle Paul. So what you get is something that is wider and richer and more relational, having to do with how humans relate to one another in the kind of uh, deepest, richest ways that I think can enfold rights, but is something much, much wider. So that justice would actually involve and could involve things like generosity and forgiveness and mercy and the giving of gifts. I think justice is a kind of um, what um, could be called an architectonic virtue, meaning mm. it encompasses all the ways in which we are to relate to one another. And then obviously has social and political meaning and could have um, a lot to offer us, even in terms of some of our contemporary uh, social problems. Yeah. And hearing you kind of talk about the distinctions between these two notions, not that they're in contrast to each other, but you're saying that the biblical notion is wider. It, it, it gives more of a vision of what it means to be just. It also strikes me that as you're putting the accent on that biblical vision, that it's more fundamentally interpersonal. This says something about who and what the human being is, right? Not just one who individually has certain things due to them and has certain rights, but we actually perhaps owe things to one another that this relationship is part of what it means to be a human being. Yes, that's right. I mean, it involves the things that, um, you know, there, there are rights I have to, uh, you know, if I sign up with uh, the water company for them to <laughs> offer uh, water to my house, well, they have a right to my payment. <laughs> I have right. a right to the water. And that's important that that's a right. If it doesn't come or if they don't get my payment, well, we're going to have to talk talk about it. <laughs> but the way that we relate to one another in families, but also as citizens and in the church and all realms of society mm-hmm. involves a lot more r- riches. And um, the Apostle Paul says, owe nothing to one another except for love. And so there's a kind of um, constant gift of self that we owe owe to others. Mm. And that involves a lot of riches. You know, again, like mercy, forgiveness, hospitality, generosity that uh, are not easily captured by what is due. Yeah. Reminds me of, um, I think it's St. Catherine of Siena in her dialogues. Here's the Lord say to her, basically, you owe me your love, your charity, right? Because I've given it to you without cause, without reason. But the way that you can actually pay me back, he doesn't put it in these words, but the way that you can actually respond in thanksgiving to the charity I have rendered you is to render it to your neighbor who has no claim on you. And the vision I think that St. Catherine has there from the Lord is that we don't just start from a position of being neutral towards each other and we just have to get back to neutral, but we're actually we, in that sense, owe each other what is good for the other. And it's it's just kind of a radical vision in that sense. And to base the notion of justice on that kind of vision of being part of God's creation, of what it means to be God's creatures, that seems to change things quite a bit. Yes, that's right. And I think that's right. We owe, we, since we owe God everything, and God has a right to our worship and to everything. But then out of that, we love our neighbor. But the way in which we love our neighbor then needs to be defined mm-hmm. vocationally and in terms of, um, you know, finding that path as we are led. And I think of, um, you know, there's like, for instance, the biblical injunction to give to the poor and love the poor. The poor is very important right. in the Bible. But how do we do that? I mean, um, 
do I discharge that by, um, you know, supporting the child in Africa or do I go to my local homeless shelter or does it mean giving financially? Does it mean a personal involvement? All those kinds of questions are open-ended and they'll look different for, for different people. And that's why I think it goes uh, wider than, than rights. I mean, I think that might be called a wide obligation that philosophers Mm -hmm. like that term that it's not specified with respect to how we, um, discharge it or exactly with, with respect to whom. So, you know, a poor person in Burundi couldn't stand up and say, I have a right to, Dan, Dan Fopat, to your resources. Mm. But nevertheless, I have an obligation to the poor. Mm-hmm. So obligations and rights don't exactly, um, you know, match up. And in fact, my obligation is wider than any poor person's rights. Yeah. Now, the poor do have rights. I want to say that. Yeah. I'm just saying that that doesn't exhaust or capture, you know, the kind of what we owe and what, uh, yeah. what we're called to do. Very fine. Something that that caught my eye in reading some of the things you've written is the term Eucharistic justice. So we're talking about this biblical notion of justice, but you even specified it. It seems a little bit more to call it Eucharistic justice. How does the person of Christ and his gift of himself reveal and make possible justice for us? Yes. Well, one of the remarkable things um, in reading the scriptures that I came across and that really challenged the notion of do is that God's reconciliation of the world to himself through cross and resurrection is itself an act of justice. So Mm. if you look at Paul, the Apostle Paul in the letter to Romans talks about, well, he often uses the term, it's translated into English as righteousness. You know, God's righteousness was such that at the appointed time he came and, you know, gave himself as a gift. But I think the the term there is dikaiosune, which can also be translated to justice. Hmm. And in some versions of the Bible do translate it to justice. The Latin Vulgate, which was the authoritative Bible for so many centuries, you know, uses the term justitia, readily translates to justice. It's in English we have this option of going with righteousness or justice that renders a lot of these terms righteousness. But they could also be justice. Hmm. But if you see God's redemption of the world as justice, well, that's a gift. That wasn't owed to us. Paul calls it a gift in many, many places. And um, it's, you know, everybody would agree, you know, that's a gift that the opposite was owed yes, to us. Yes, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, right. He didn't give us what we owe. Right, right. You know, while we were still sinners, he gave us the gift, the yeah. gracious gift. Well, if that's justice, then that's a big clue that justice is more than hmm. what we deserve or, or what we have a right to. Hmm. It's a matter of gift. The Eucharist, of course, enacts the cross and resurrection. It's God's saving gift to us, uh, presented to us in the body of Christ. Christ's sacrifice is presented to us. And so if the Eucharist embodies that justice, then the Eucharist is that form of justice. Mm. And it's a justice that restores. You know, Fundamentally, what justice does is restore right relationship. And so that notion of right relationship as being justice is all right there in the Eucharist. This is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. I'm talking about justice, forgiveness, and reconciliation with Daniel Philpott, professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. So you're a scholar, but not at all someone who has spent his life sitting in a library and reading tomes. They're not just doing that. You've done a fair bit of that, (laughs) too. You've done some significant work on the ground, so to speak, specifically in Kashmir and in the Great Lakes region of Africa. Would you tell us a little bit about this work and what these, I don't know if we can call them experiences, what this work has yielded? Yeah, well, all all this thinking about justice, in fact, came out of some experiences on the ground. Mm -hmm. So not long after I finished um, graduate school in uh, political science, political philosophy, international relations. In my first job as a professor, I met up with a, an Episcopal pastor 
who did work around the world in reconciliation. He would travel to places that had suffered war and injustice, and he would seek to meet with the political and religious leaders and talk to them about reconciliation and kind of try to help them to be agents of reconciliation. And so uh, you know, almost immediately when I took up my first job, this was in Santa Barbara, California, fall 1996. Tough place to live. I'll yes, a very, uh, it was a parad- uh, paradisical uh, kind of setting <laughs> uh, for sure. But he asked me to go on a trip with him to uh, Sarajevo. Wow. Yugoslavia. Now, this was one year out of after the Dayton Accords, which had ended a, a war of about three and a half years in Yugoslavia. We remember a terrible war, lots of uh, deaths and suffering. So we went to Sarajevo, and there I saw a city that had been bombed out, and there were craters in the sidewalks and in, uh, buildings and yellow UN tape all over the place and makeshift graveyards and soccer fields and things like this. And, um, you know, we met, we only spent about five days there. We met with some political and religious leaders and um, uh, relief workers and, and so forth. But um, that experience really galvanized me. There was something about it that really grabbed my heart and grabbed my attention. And I thought that's a kind of a powerful vision for international relations. It, for me, it combined my Christian faith with what I had been studying uh, all these years and really became a kind of, uh, a, kind of a quest or something that I've continued to uh, follow through on. Mm-hmm. And how did you how did you find yourself say in the Great Lakes region of Africa? Yes, well, the experience in between there was mm-hmm. I continued to work with this pastor. He became a founding vice president of a non governmental organization mm-hmm. called the International Center for Religion and Diplomacy in Washington. And so we then um, went over to Kashmir, the disputed mm-hmm. land between India and Pakistan, and formed some important relationships there. And began about six years' worth of uh, working for reconciliation on the level of civil society. Now, there it is between um, Hindus and Muslims between peop- and between people who have different visions of where Kashmir ought to be politically. Should it be part of India, Pakistan, mm-hmm. an independent state? But you had the wounds of, uh, of violence of um, – you know, now the violence has been going on, well, in episodes since mm-hmm. 1947, but it's a conflict that hasn't been resolved and continues periodically to break out in violence and deep conflict. And so there were many uh, deep wounds between these peoples and among the Kashmiris. And um, so we did work in reconciliation through these, you know, civil society um, workshops and uh, seminars. What does that look like? like so what does, a, what does a workshop in reconciliation look like in a place yeah. like Kashmir? Yeah, it's a good question. So we would get uh, bring together about maybe 70 or 80 people from different walks of life, from different parts of the conflict, and they would sit at tables, and then over this period of three and a half days or so, we would kind of uh, impart a moral vision of reconciliation, mm-hmm. but through principles like bridge building and conflict resolution, also justice, forgiveness – But it wasn't just a teaching. It was also a kind of affair of the heart where we would ask them to look at the wounds of history and in the wounds in their own heart and bring those to the table. And they would have others, you know, listen to them and hear them and including others from other sides of the conflict. Mm. 
And we did see some remarkable examples of transformation. So at the beginning of some of these seminars, you would have people come in and they would want to grab the microphone and stand up in front of everybody and kind of rant at length about very angrily about what the other side had done and how they had suffered. And many people had. They had lost loved ones and, and so forth. But we saw examples of uh, some of those same people then coming to the end of the seminar. And you know, I remember one instance where the guy, the same guy grabbed the microphone, but he had a very different message. He wanted to um, apologize uh, for ways that he had been indifferent to the sufferings of the other side and offer forgiveness. And so there were many examples of uh, healing and forgiveness and uh, kind of trying to kind of rebuild the ligaments of society where there there had been so many, many wounds. Mm-hmm. So the key is to it seems, well, I don't know if it's the key, but a key seems to be to create this kind of space that's not just a space that's open, but you're actually kind of guiding and shaping the space in a certain way. You're going to talk in certain ways. You're going to you're going to lead them through to certain kinds of thinking, certain certain possibilities that may not have occurred, and actually allow them to listen to each other to be able to maybe have this shift in understanding. Yes, right. Yes, exactly. Uh, creating a space is very important. So mm-hmm. it's a space where they can speak openly and be heard. In fact, the very first exercise that we do is uh, we call an active listening exercise. That might seem a little hokey. We've all been doing those kind of <laughs> seminars and things like that. But Or marriage prep or something. Yes, yeah, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> but in fact, when you have people who aren't ready to even speak to one another and can't even speak about what had happened to them mm. and had maybe never had an experience of somebody from the other side of the conflict or maybe even anybody at all really hear their wounds, their suffering, what they had experienced and their sense of injustice mm. and having them. There's something almost kind of semi-miraculous about being heard and having people simply listen to them without, you know, without being ready to jump in and, you know, fire back and we all know been in those kind of arguments where we have the answer ready as soon as the other person speaks and and uh, but to to be heard to be genuinely heard that right there can have a transforming effect and often that kind of opens up uh, space and softens things up some mm-hmm. so that uh, more can happen this is Leonard DiLorenzo. You're listening to Church Life Today. I'm talking about justice, forgiveness, and reconciliation with Daniel Philpot, professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. So you mentioned just a moment ago uh, this one one individual who the first time he came in grabbed the microphone and wanted to shout at the others. And then the later after this, this process and doing this work together, he did take the microphone, but it was very different. He wanted to acknowledge the hurt of the other and take some responsibility for it, it seems, and offer forgiveness, you said. I, I, I think I know the answer to this question, but do you ever expect forgiveness when you're doing this work with others? <laughs> Are you constantly surprised by forgiveness? Are you surprised by the lack of forgiveness? I guess like, is forgiveness possible? We're talking about in some of these cases, people that have not just hurt the feelings of others, but ruined the lives of others, yes. right? Um, taken loved ones, yes. taken away their livelihood, taken right. away their memories. So yes. what is it like to be in the either the expectation or the hope of forgiveness in, in situations like this? Yes. I mean, forgiveness is something remarkable that it's not necessarily, yeah, not something you expect. There's always a kind of, um, even though we talk about it as a principle in the seminar, there's always a kind of surprise and drama when people perform it. Mm. And maybe again, it's be, maybe it's because it's something that you know, perpetrators don't have a right to. I mean, forgiveness is a kind of gift. And um, we want it. And that's one of the ways calls for forgiveness can go wrong is if it's kind of forced too much or right. scripted too much. Right. Now is the time when you want to say to somebody, okay, I have a right to your forgiveness. Mm-hmm. Now pony up. And well, <laughs> no. And in fact, it can seem miraculous when people um, 
forgive at all. But yet they do. And we did see uh, many instances of that, including, you know, one one uh, a Muslim who had uh, lost several family members and his own face was scarred. He had had multiple surgeries from having been um, uh, wounded in at the hands of the violence of of uh, the Indian Army, and um, and he had held bitterness in his heart for many years. In fact, over this, in this experience of of the workshop, he did come to forgive, and then actually became a kind of, uh, you know, a kind of a, an apostle for peace in Kashmir as a result of that experience, or at mm. least was greatly strengthened by it. So, why do people forgive? Well, as Christians, of course, we believe there's a grace involved, and we believe that it's something that comes, it's a supernatural, natural gift. Now, we did see people of other faiths experience uh, forgiveness and practice it as well. I think one thing is um, people who are skeptical of forgiveness, I think sometimes simply understand forgiveness as a kind of simple relinquishment, like you, Mm. you know, you have this cause of justice, and then all of a sudden you just kind of give it up and (laughs) decide not to pursue it anymore. Well, that doesn't seem right, and we think people ought to pursue their cause of justice and stand up for their dignity, and, you know, we don't want them to sort of just cave in. But maybe forgiveness is something else. Um, I think forgiveness actually involves much more of an act of construction, or it's an act of peace-building on the part of those who perform it. In a lot of ways, people actually kind of recover their agency or their strength or their sense of not being a victim any longer by forgiving, rather than just being somebody who is the object of terrible violence or injustice. Now there's somebody who is actually you know, exercising a will towards making things better. Mm. They're kind of an, and in doing that, they they become an acting agent and a, a shaper. And uh, and in doing that, they re, they regain a lot of strength. And I think they they gain the strength of no longer being a victim. And then I think in offering a gift to somebody else, there's a way that that then brings healing to oneself and um, heals one's own heart. And there's also the benefit of kind of relinquishing anger, which over the long term can become very uh, debilitating. I mean, the Amish have a phrase that acid destroys the the container that uh, contains it. I think that that can be right uh, over uh, the long term. Anger can become a kind of acid that you know destroys the person who holds on to it. So there is a. I think there's a kind of freedom that is um, achieved through forgiveness. I think it's important always to remember that it does involve a cost. It does involve a kind of, um, you know, cost of giving up something that one might feel that one is, you know, deserves. Or Yeah. What is, in terms of this gift, this un- unexpected, always in some ways unprecedented, well, not unprecedented, but unexpected gift of forgiveness, what does that do, do you think, for the healing of the memory of the victim? Because I know that in any act of, of violence, of abuse, of wounding of someone, that it isn't just what stays with them physically or how they are in the present, but it's also the looking back at what has been and what has been lost and carrying those wounds within them. So this this act of forgiveness, which you're saying, in order for it to last and to be real, it has to be in some ways constructive. Um, mm-hmm. It gives you something to do. It liberates you in order to be able to do something and not simply be subscribed to the role of victim. But how is that? How have you seen or how do you think that memory is healed in that process. Yeah, and that's a good question. I mean, I I like to begin with the word remembering, and there's a kind Mm. of a pun there. Remembering is, of course, recalling the past, but it's also... Putting together. Yeah, remembering. We put together the members that have been of our body or the members Mm. of the organism that have been dissevered and broken apart. I think forgiveness has that quality of restoring and so in remembering, we, we begin by remembering the, the past. We, we, we don't ignore it. We have to confront and often articulate 
um, what has happened. I think it's also very important that something that often paves the way for forgiveness is acknowledgement. Mm -hmm. So if others acknowledge the past, that thing that happened, um, it can strengthen one in one's willingness to forgive. It has been acknowledged, even more so when there's an apology on the part of those who uh, have have done it, because it um, also, you know, focuses attention on that past, but in a in a way that is healing. But that's ultimately what happens through forgiveness. So you begin by recalling what happened, but it's not the memory is not just left there, the pain and the woundedness and the loss, but it's transformed so that it could be something different. So we don't ignore the past, but we take it, but it also doesn't just stay the way that it was. It's now rem- remembered differently in a way that can be healing or remembered. And so um, when it is remembered in a way that overcomes it and and seeks to then look to a future that could be something different and healed, then forgiveness involves that kind of that restoration. Mm-hmm. This seems to this brings me back at least in my mind to what you were talking about in the beginning in terms of this more interpersonal framework of justice that we derive from a biblical vision that it doesn't get reduced simply to what is due to rights, but in fact, it has to do with right relationship, as you said. So this, as you're talking about this remembering, putting back together again, what has been pulled apart, it seems like part of that vision of the biblical justice is that you and I actually belong together, the Mm. victim and the perpetrator. Yes even beyond belief, belong together in some way, and the perpetrator has done something to pull us apart terribly, right? Yes. So this act of forgiveness, this work of reconciliation, I'm just kind of like reflecting on what you've said before, and I'd love to hear your thoughts on it. Getting This is a a real instance of moving back towards the restoration of right relationships. Yes. That's right. I mean, that, that, that's right. That um, I mean, God's intention is for people to be restored, to be reconciled, and that's always the thing to kind of strive for in a Christian vision. Right. And the real world, are, I mean, they're as a result of sin, and and there are many circumstances which can can prevent that, of course. And reconciliation is always, you know, this side of the veil is always partial, mm-hmm. and um, sometimes it can happen in dramatic ways, but often doesn't happen and happens partially, and so forth. But that's the thing to that uh, I think God's vision is for us to, um, you know, shoot for that. That would be different from a, a vision which just says, well, it's over when the perpetrator gets the right sentence or yeah. when, uh, um, you know, the right reparation is delivered or um, or people are just separated so that they're safe or what have you. All those things are important. Right. And um, but. You know the the really the really uh, the vision is for a kind of restoration. I think this maybe is most um, kind of vividly enacted in places like Rwanda, where what you've written about, or or Uganda, where people literally have to live in the same village. Um, they don't have the resources to go uh, live somewhere else. They live in a small village. They don't have the resources to live on the other side of town or yeah. <laughs> to just pick up and move like maybe we do here uh, in America. But they're likely to live in the same village with and maybe with people who perpetrated injustices of the yeah. genocide or what have you. And that's who they'll be with for the rest of their lives. They won't, you know, they'll have to see the person. Right. And so then that kind of living together and how we're going to live together is brought front and center. Yeah. Well, I'd love to continue some of this conversation and bring it into touch with some of the things maybe some of our listeners might be thinking about things like the abuse scandals in the church and seeking some sort of reconciliation there. I'd love to talk a little bit more about where you're just mentioning places like Rwanda or Uganda, where these processes of national reconciliation have taken place. Yes. Would you mind sticking around and we'll do one more episode? 
Yes, I would love to. So this will be episode one, friends, and I've been talking to Daniel Philpott, professor of political science at the University of Notre Dame. Uh, You can find the second episode of our conversation on our podcast, or if you're listening on air, it'll be aired next week. Thank you, Professor Philpott. Thank you. Wonderful to be with you. And thanks all of you for joining us on Church Life Today. Church Life Today podcast is a production of Redeemer Radio and the McGrath Institute for Church Life at the University of Notre Dame and is brought to you in part by Notre Dame FCU and our listeners.